Now it's time for News Without My Dad, a show where we talk about the news sometimes with my dad and in studio is me. But on the telephone line, playing the role of my dad is in fact my dad, a momentary special guest, Joe Smith. Pop, how you feeling this morning? A little better, a little better. I have, I have discovered that being sick is a really great thing when you're dealing with telemarketers. Why? Because you just say I'm sick? Telemarketers, they always say, how are you doing or how are you? And when I say I'm sick, do you know what they do? No. They hang up. <laughs> it, it proves that it proves that that question because they don't want to catch it because they're worried. Well, it, it proves that 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 question is absolutely insincere. They don't give a damn about how you are, and when they find out you're all out of well, they go away. Well, Dad, I care about how you are, and I think so do our listeners. This is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Some sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff when it's unimportant. We try. To say so, we take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. But, Pop, I'm not sure the answer to this question. Do you have a shout-out? I do. I want a shout-out this morning for the kids, the students, especially the track students, especially, well, well, all the track students at Concordia, who, having been told that their school is closing that they are having the rug pulled out from them, that the education they were embarked upon has come to a screeching halt, which is going to have huge, nonetheless went out in their league's track meet, and the women took first place, and the men took second place, which is no small thing, and I just think they should shout out for them. Well, mostly, Pop, I just wanted people to hear your... The, the proof of your weakened voice. We don't need to abuse it any further, but was there anything that was actually, there's, burning there's in your brain you I want to talk share. about? I won't talk about it very long because talking actually is a little unpleasant for me because my throat is very sore. But anyway, I do want to just put a little couple of comments. we got to talk about the COVID-19, of course. Did, did you, by the way, last night we spoke, did you take your temperature again last night? Where were you at? Uh, I took my temperature just in the last 10 minutes, and it's 97.1. All right. So it's not very high. No. Okay. no it, it's, you it, haven't it, had a temperature yet. It, That's it our crawl, great hope. It crawls, up, it crawls up to 98 by the end of the day. It was just where I went to bed last night All right. for the last time, because I went to bed several times yesterday, but the last time it was 98. All right. You're running cool. Keep going. So anyway... The president went on television last night, read for 11 minutes off the teleprompter, kept strictly to the teleprompter. It's pretty dull, but a t- completely different story than the one where he, he and his White House folks were saying in the past. They were calling it a hoax, and they were saying the Democrats were just ginning it up to try to use it as a way to get him, all that kind of nonsense. And he admitted, well, it really is serious, and, and maybe old people ought to stay home, and I'm an old people, and that's what I am doing. The, uh, but he could, he cannot resist saying that whatever they're doing is the greatest, what they're doing is unprecedented. It is, he, he is just so awful. But the thing I want to make sure our listeners hear, beware of coronavirus scams. 
Somebody, you get a little telemarketer call, and they've got a sure cure. Or you get an email, and there's a sure, beware of scams, because the crooks are out. They are definitely out. We're going to have virtual events, and I'm thinking in the political scheme, this might be really good for both Joe Biden and Bernie, but especially for Joe Biden, who Joe appears to do a little better when he's not uh, too tired, and the fact that they're not going to have to be chasing around to all kinds of events and shaking hands and smoozing, and they just prepare for when they're going to be on TV, probably, probably pretty good for their their uh, ability to perform. So we shall see. Yeah, they're not spring chickens. It, it, it's a good question. If they're telling older people to avoid crowds, what do you do when your two candidates are uh, in the Democratic primary remaining or getting close to 80 years old? Yeah, which by most people's definition would say at least older. All right, Bob. Well, I think we should probably let you go. I think we should probably let you rest your voice, and we should move along. Well, I really appreciate that, and I hope you have a wonderful day, and I'll be listening. All right. Love you, Pop. Love you, too. We will be talking about the election. Something we know now is that Bernie Sanders is not dropping out of the race. He will stick around in the race, at the very least to participate in the upcoming debate on the 15th, which will be a debate without a live audience. My wife was thrilled about this, by the way. Uh, Thrilled about, not about the state of the presidential campaign. She decries the rise, uh, who should say rise, the, the persistence of misogyny in American politics. But she is very glad to have a debate that where there aren't live audiences. She's always hated a live audience because it ends up being the cheers or boos or raucousness that infects the conversation rather than the conversation itself. That's just her view. What do you think? How do you feel about live audiences at debates? 971-220-5979. Again, the call in line, the text in line is 971-220-5979. Doing some pre-mortems and post-mortems, some uh, previews and post-analyses on the, for the upcoming primary states and at the primary states that just happened. Uh, Bernie is looking not strong in Florida in particular, uh, looking at an article here on that topic, including and particularly among Hispanic voters. His, one of the challenges he has to overcome there were his comments about Fidel Castro, the Latino community. It's very different in Florida than it is in the, in the Southwest in that uh, much of the militating, much of motivation among the Cuban, Cuban population over the past 50 years has essentially been anti-Castro motivation. We got some numbers in Mississippi. Uh, 96% of the uh, black voters in Mississippi are pro-Joe uh, Biden. Uh, the But Bernie Sanders hoping to have a one-on-one debate with hoping to excel in a one-on-one debate with Joe Biden. What do you think are the key questions that are going to come up? Obviously, you know, I suspect there are differences around uh, around universal health care. There are differences around uh, college tuition. Many of the issues that have militated and motivated the transformative, I would argue transformative, uh, Bernie Sanders movement and, the, and, and concomitantly, somewhat relatedly, the Elizabeth Warren campaigns. Uh, what do you think are the questions that are really on your mind? What do you think is going to be debated. 971-220-5979. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is news without my dad. James Clyburn, by the way, I want to say this. 
James Clyburn, by the way, uh, came out and said, ah, it's time for the party to step in and end this primary. It's over. I don't think we need to rush for what it's worth. There is, uh, I see little benefit. I mean, I can just imagine how many of our friends who are Bernie Sanders supporters would feel and what, and what we'd all have to say if the Democratic National Committee were to step in and say, okay, primary's over, we're calling it. There's a virus out there. We kind of know who's ahead a little bit, so let's wrap it up here. I just see huge risks of blowback for that. And also, like I think we'll, states can have a chance to vote. I think as it gets closer to the convention, there will be a question about, uh, in, in fact, Bernie Sanders' own recently uh, stated view that whoever has the plurality of votes heading into the convention should endorse whoever's in first place. So I think then they come up. But right now, I think having Bernie Sanders participate in another debate, making sure people understand the race that started out as looked like Joe Biden was the front runner, looked like Bernie Sanders was the uh, sort of other incumbent of the progressive lane, ended up being the most diverse field of a presidential primary, a presidential candidacy period that this country had ever seen. And at moments, it looked like neither Joe Biden nor Bernie Sanders were going to merge as the front runners. Where we are now is kind of where we started. There's been a sea of craziness in betwixt, but where we are now is kind of where we started. There hasn't, though, been a chance for Joe Biden and for Bernie Sanders to sit down together in front of the American voter and make the contrast clear, present their views uh, to the nation uninterrupted by or without the cacophony either of an audience cheering or jeering or of a handful or a dozen other candidates, other elected officials, other politicians trying to get in their own talking points as well. I think it could be healthy for the country to have this one-on-one debate. I am glad that Bernie Sanders has not stepped out of the race. Uh, there is another raft of voters. I mean, to be clear, Joe Biden has, except for the very beginning of the race when he came in as the, as in many people's eyes, the front runner. Other people viewed Bernie as the strongest candidate because he had such a strong army around the country. But there is now a chance to evaluate. You know, Joe Biden's only seemed like a front runner for. A week, one week, since since basically, I mean, you might you might call it you might call it ten days, but he wasn't the front runner after South Carolina. He just had a big win, so it's really only been since Super Tuesday. So we're talking we're talking like a week and three days at most. So having another raft of states vote after there's a chance to see these two human beings debate, I think could be good. And then we know we'll have much better information if Joe Biden continues to sweep the states as he did. Right now, he's even trending in Washington state. I will acknowledge I viewed uh, Washington state as a must-win state for Bernie. It's usually an exaggeration when somebody says anything is a must-win. But it's, it seemed to me that Bernie needed to win some states, and Washington State was a state. You know, he won Washington State and Michigan last time. Michigan was the bellwether that people were watching. Uh, remember? Do you remember when we talked about Macomb County? I wanted to say something about Macomb County. Macomb County is the county that Eminem is from. Do you remember when we talked about this three years ago? Not all of you remember, but some of you might. By the way, if there's something you remember, something you want to talk about, it's 971 
Macomb County is a suburb of Detroit, up the 8 mile, I believe. And it is predicted the presidential winner for election after election for the last many elections, Macomb County. And at Macomb County is one of the reasons why Michigan was viewed as a bellwether. And Joe Biden is showing greater strength in Macomb County. But I also viewed Washington State because Bernie Sanders has been so strong on the West Coast, so strong, did, did, so strong in Nevada, uh, strong in California. We don't have final results there. That's sort of ridiculous. How long is California going to take? I don't mean to criticize. But Bernie Sanders still in first place in California. Uh, most of the watchers are saying, yeah, but that margin will probably stay about the same because the late voters were breaking for Biden. Bernie Sanders is such a strong... Uh, I, I think they all ended up in the race at the same time. I think Elizabeth Warren might have won Oregon, but what do I know? Bernie Sanders, though, the movement is so strong. In fact, Bernie Sanders' body man, have we talked about this? I think I mentioned it before. Longtime friend of mine, one of the earliest co-founders, uh, co-collaborators of the bus project in the early days, Jesse Cornett, uh, heck, friend of my wife's from PSU. He's, he's from here. He was he actually ran for the state senate against Rob Monroe and lost by I think it was ninety six votes. And he's uh, he was also one of the one of the early movers in Blue Oregon, the uh, progressive blog when blogs were Blue Oregon still exists, but it was a I think it does. Uh, but when blogs were sort of on the rise, Blue Oregon was one of the go to places for political news in Oregon. Jesse helped do that with Carl Chisholm. And, and also with Jeff Allworth. Jeff Allworth now still uh, still a friend. Jeff Allworth does the Beervana podcast, the Beervana website. You can check out an x-ray and check out the Beervana website elsewhere. Anyway, they started Blue Oregon, the website. So, But Bernie's been so strong in Oregon and so strong in Washington State that I have viewed for his campaign Washington State as a real bellwether. And the it's been basically a dead tie in Washington State. But the last numbers I saw were... Joe Biden inching ahead because, again, according to the trends, uh, the later vote was leaning Biden. But we're going to have another wrap to states. And we're going to have a wrap to states after Bernie Sanders has a chance to sit directly with Joe Biden. So I would, with respect to James Clyburn, disagree that there is some great rush to uh, decide that this thing is decided when really Joe Biden has only been the, seemed like the nominee for 10 days at most. I also want to respond, though, to an article that was shared on our on our team Slack uh, that I thought it from the Guardian. I thought it was very interesting, and it was it was by, by Robert Reich. Uh, do we say Reich? Do we say Reich? I should know. I've heard his name a million times, but I pronounce it in my head always differently. Oh, this is embarrassing. And I'll just read the very first portion of it. When middle-aged and older people feel unsafe, they run to the familiar and the reliable even if it's deadly dull. Younger people who feel threatened are more likely to take risks in hope of finding something better. The generational difference explains a great deal of what's happened during the most tumultuous two weeks in recent American economic and political history. Yeah, I saw a tweet the other day. It's like Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. It's just happening like in one week. Like the whole thing is just happening like right now at one time. And Robert Reich corresponds with my own analysis, whatever that is worth, which is that fear is dominating so much of our thinking. 
fear is dominating so much of obviously our, uh, our, our, our feeling centers and having us retreat to our amygdala to too great a degree, to our reptilian brain, as we make our political decisions. And when, you know, when things are kind of good, we might look for adventure. Barack Obama was running for president at a time we were getting a little nervous about the economy. We'd had, we had a strong run-up. The tech stuff was still kind of new. We weren't yet afraid that social media companies were manipulating our elections. There's sort of a chance to share Angry Birds, talk about our families, breaking up with high school friends. And this is a time that adventure does not feel like the mood in the air. Think about how you're feeling right now. Think about how you're doing. Are you feeling like, oh, geez, I want to go to Italy. Maybe China or South Korea. Troutdale. Or maybe really not. And that when we retreat to our amygdala, where we don't want to feel adventure, that can apply to our political judgments. They did these studies, right? We looked at taste buds and voters with more who had taste buds that tasted sort of disgusting stuff more readily were more likely to be Republican. They did another study that was sort of similar, not using taste buds, but that the Republican voter was more likely to feel the emotion of disgust than the Democratic voter. If you had done that same test before the massive alignment and realignment of political parties, it probably would have been more shaken up. But now there is this sort of this feeling that there, there's a significant alignment now of our emotional predilections and our voting predilections. And in a time when this president has made so many people scared, children in cages, threatening to take away health care, pushing the Supreme Court and pushing the Department of Justice to fight against the first big move on health care this country has done since Lyndon Johnson. And it makes you feel a little bit scared. And of course, I've cited my conversation with Anthony Deloney a long time, a long time many times, it was a while back. When I was talking about, oh, look at these interesting candidates, he's like, no, nah, man, we can't mess around. Not this election, we can't mess around. I think there are a lot of people who are feeling we can't mess around. And I appreciate Mr. Reich's article, uh, Mr. Reich's article uh, about the uh, uh, generational divide, which I have seen as the one of the defining, maybe the most interesting, the most defining divide in Bernie versus Biden, which is how much strong, much of the attention has been around communities of color and, and particularly the black community and how Joe Biden went into the South and, and 96% of black voters in Mississippi said in exit polls that they supported Joe Biden. That is an enormous, just a vast delta. And so I don't want to cheapen the importance of that. But the other real difference, the one that, seems so interesting to me is not only the divide among communities of color, but the divide among ages. That older voters in Iowa, even when Joe Biden didn't do that well, voted Biden over Bernie. And that Bernie Sanders voters in Iowa, just, like the young voters for Bernie said, just trounced everybody else. And 
appreciate the analysis to connect that to our emotional set points. Let's get to some news. We, we've got to talk. We ought to give the president a chance to sh- share his confused, mildly confusing, somewhat misguided. I guess I'm appreciating because if you listen to all of his clips prior, basically to last night, it was like, no, it's no big deal. It's going to go away. It's going to be, you know, in, in April, the heat is going to kill it. Uh, we're just hold. We're, we've had, we have a few cases now, but it's going to go to zero. By the way, the cases don't go down until you figure out how to cure the thing, or until you have significant social intervention. But now he has decided because Donald Trump believes the threats are outside, the threats are away. The threats are not polluters in our midst. The threats are not economic bad actors in our midst. The threats are not internal attacks on democracy. The threats are not psychopaths with too easy to gather guns and too hard to pass restrictions on those guns. The enemies were out. Outside, we got to build walls to protect us. Well, apparently, the risk for coronavirus is not Seattle, is not Eugene or Corvallis, is not New York City, it's Europe. Here's the president. After consulting with our top government health professionals, I have decided to take several strong but necessary actions to protect the health and well-being of all Americans. To keep new cases from entering our shores, we will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. The new rules will go into effect Friday at midnight. These restrictions will be adjusted subject to conditions on the ground. There will be exemptions for Americans who have undergone appropriate screenings, and these prohibitions will not only apply to the tremendous amount of trade and cargo, but various other things as we get approval. Anything coming from Europe to the United States is what we are discussing. These restrictions will also not apply to the United Kingdom. At the same time, we are monitoring the situation in China and the South Korea. And as their situation improves, we will reevaluate the restrictions and warnings that are currently in place for a possible early opening. Let's be clear. The idea that travel from Europe is going to keep the coronavirus from the United States is absurd. Now, I'm not sure there should. I'm not sure there shouldn't be some travel restrictions, right? I think taking this seriously is the first step. And if there are experts who say travel restrictions, heck, Italy has the second most uh, cases to China. And Italy shares borders with a bunch of European countries who share borders with all the European countries. At least there's water around England. But let's be clear. 75% of COVID-19 cases get transmitted betwixt family groups. The enemy is inside the house. That's the challenge. It is not coming from afar. There's no wall we are going to build. 
to cite our friend at HBO. It is the difference between airtight and pretty close to airtight is the difference between a submarine and a handy tube that you can die underwater. Just a little bit of leaks, it's going to be here. So what you actually have to do is test. And the thing I was disappointed about when Dad was not feeling well was he can't get tested. Not because, and and by the way, I don't say this because I'm concerned selfishly merely, not even primarily. If he got it, well, he's already got it. It's not going to, not much they can do. Maybe get him on a respirator. But he does, right now he doesn't need a respirator. But the real thing is so he can track cases. So we can know if my brother, my nephew, need to be quarantined. Or if dad needs to be quarantined away from them or away from his neighbors. No, he's not wandering around kissing his neighbors. But nonetheless, we test not to protect ourselves, but to protect one another. It is such an abject lesson. It's such a, or an object lesson, such a good example of why we have to approach the world to some degree with a philosophy that we are in this together. Because ultimately, only worrying about ourselves in a time of cholera, the time of Spanish flu, and the time of COVID-19 is insufficient. Is insufficient to stop the spread. And of course, the president doesn't want tests. Because if more people like my dad were getting tested, more people like the guy who was working on our house, one who did a good job rather than one who ran away, he said, you know what? I think I had it. I think my whole family had it. We're not, we're feeling better now, but we look at our symptoms. They're basically the same. Maybe we just had the flu. We don't know. We had a flu shot, but I think we probably had it. If there are more people like that that got tested and that increased the cases, what all of a sudden you'd see what's actually been happening, which is a significant drop in the stock market. With the Dow dropping at 1.2,000 points today, now I think it's about 1,700 down from yesterday, this very moment, and trying to lie to the American people, American people, instead of saying, yeah, this is going to be tough, and here's things we got to do. We're going to do what Germany has done. We're going to do what Japan has done. We're going to have drive-through testing centers. So the doctors who aren't saying, like them to my dad, say, hey, come on in. Come on in here. Infect everybody. Yeah, if you if you got the if you got the green grunge, come on in. But instead of saying, no, no, you drive through right there. And instead of driving through McDonald's and getting yourself diabetes, drive through and get yourself a test. What they've been saying on state television on Fox News is nothing to worry about, nothing to worry about. Is Econot Larry Kudlow, who was supposed to be a journalist prior such a stupid use of that word. Prior to being a member of the Trump administration said the thing is basically contained. Absurd. What we need to be doing is testing and social distancing, which means, by the way, we're going to be meeting today about our plans about the X-ray awards because they're next week. And although I think we could keep it under the 250 threshold, we've got to be responsible also. That's the other news, by the way, locally. Governor Kate Brown has announced that events over 250 people over the next month should not happen. 
That's related to the other big news. NBA season's over. Everybody knows this already. The Blazers' worst season in a while? Well, it's not happening, at least for a little while. And it's hard for me to imagine. Maybe I looked at a, I, I looked at some visual graphs of what, how viruses act. Uh, it is. It does typically that that one month time frame could tell us something. If there is a big outbreak here, then things might chill out. The interesting thing is, I saw that when you do have extreme measures, you significantly reduce. If you do the quarantining, maybe not as severe as the quarantining they did in China. You understand what they did in China? In China, anywhere you went, they would take your temperature. You showed up to work, they would take your temperature. And then, if you had a temperature, you didn't go home. You went straight to a fever clinic where you'd get tested. Initially, not for COVID-19. Immediately, you'd get a blood screen to see if your white blood cell count was up. You'd find to find out if you had a cold or a flu. And then they'd give you a CAT scan. And instead of these, you know, instead of the CAT scans that we get here that, you know, take two weeks to book, cost you three grand, and you do a few in a day. They were doing 200 CAT scans in a day per machine. Just like in and out CAT scan. We don't, we don't even have an in and out burger. Ours is in and stay. Wait around a while. Might be easier now, though. Maybe it would be easier to get an in-out burger. You listen to X-Ray, by the way. KXY Portland, KQAC, HD3 Portland, 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. But the answer, of course, is social distancing. The NBA is taking heed to that. South by Southwest taking heed to that. There's been some questions about local events that don't bring in as many people and don't bring in people from afar. So everyone comes, everybody gets, everybody leaves and gives it to everywhere else. Anybody out there not feeling well? Anybody out there have questions? One of the things we're going to be doing here is sharing the facts as we get them. One key local fact, Governor Kate Brown has asked in the next month the people not do events over the size of 251 casualty of that is Sam Adams, former mayor, current candidate for city council. His campaign kickoff, which was scheduled just coming up, they have decided they are not doing that kickoff. It had 400 RSVPs, and that's over the size. NCAA basketball tournament has been announced that they're going to be holding it without an audience. So all of these tournaments, including the Pac-12 tournament, etc., Upcoming tournaments will be held without fans due to the ongoing coronavirus outbreak. I guess the Pac-10 tournament, Pac-12 tournament, excuse me, basically over. But the big show is coming up. And NCAA President Mark Emmert has said this decision is the best interest of public health, including that of coaches. But see, with the NBA, Rudy Gobert, center for the Utah Jazz, they canceled in part because they were worried about Rudy Gobert. Not just about Fans getting it from other fans and giving it to other fans. The players getting it from and giving it to other players. And with any cases of any team in the NCAA tournament, it seems hard for me to imagine them having the tournament. We'll see. I could be wrong. I'm not really in the business of making predictions. Coachella is getting delayed. Instead, it's going to happen October 9th between the 11th and 16th. 
Coachella again going to be October 9th through the 11th and oh excuse me I should say on the 16th through the 18th so Coachella is going to be there also switching and let's just hope we got the thing under control by then sometimes you know what happened with Spanish flu of course is it came bouncing back with a roar Harvey Weinstein has been sentenced to 23 years in prison for rape and sexual abuse and now there's an effort to extradite him to New York State. So they'll have both New York and Los Angeles criminal charges. The administration is considering delaying the tax deadline because of the coronavirus. Steve Mnuchin has said he'd like to postpone the April 15th tax filing deadline because of the outbreak. Supreme Court has allowed Donald Trump's full Remain in Mexico program to continue. The policy, officially called Migrant Protection Protocols, requires asylum seekers to remain in Mexico until their day in a U.S. court. That has led roughly 60,000 migrants getting sent back across the border since MPP was first implemented in January of 2019. That's roughly 10,000 of those migrants in often difficult, dirty, and dangerous positions as they continue to stay in the situation that they are likely to escape. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals had briefly blocked the policy last month. The appeals court later issued a new order blocking the policy in just California and Arizona. That was supposed to go into effect on Thursday, but now the Supreme Court put an end to all of that. Lawsuits continue to make their way through the federal system. Supreme Court has allowed Trump's Remain in Mexico program to continue. Let's do some election news. Former 2020 candidate Andrew Yang endorsed Joe Biden. Former tech entrepreneur in 2020 candidate Andrew Yang has endorsed the vice president. After Biden gained projected primary wins in Michigan, Missouri, and Mississippi. What Andrew Yang had to say was the mass says, Joe is our prohibitive nominee. We need to bring the party together and to start working on defeating Donald Trump in the fall. And I say this having supported Bernie Sanders in 2016. Bernie was an inspiration for me, inspired by my run. Yeah, I got a text message from a Bernie Sanders person yesterday. The campaign might, might have been, a, might, I don't know if it was a human being or a robot, just saying, hey, we've got a rally coming up. Or, you know, you, you're going you're gonna to vote. And, you know, we all saw that poll that had of the Elizabeth Warren supporters over a third, like four, nearly 40 percent of them being Biden supporters. Uh, Sarah Kenzier and Andrew Chalupa of Gaslit Nation the podcast that I will indeed recommend. We're saying that was a testament to Elizabeth Warren's ability to take many of the Bernie Sanders campaigns, ideas, philosophies, and values and get them to appeal to a different set of voters. I think there are others, another analysis that I think there are probably other people like Andrew Yang. I'm like, okay, this thing is over. Well, I'd say it's not over. There is a debate. It's the first time. Like Bernie Sanders was the front runner for like a week. And now Joe Biden's been the front runner for like a week. Before that, it was anybody's ball game, right? It was Pete Buttigieg seemed like the front runner for 24 hours. So I think we can breathe. We're gonna make sure that we're paying attention to our families. I'm Jefferson Smith. We're coming at you live. Thanks for listening. You're listening to X-Ray.
The United Kingdom has announced a rare stimulus package. Bank of England has cut interest rates. While policymakers announced measures including a facility to encourage banks to lend to small businesses. Today is expected the European Union will announce their own stimulus package. And let's talk about this for a second. So first of all, economic stimulus will be necessary in some measure. And if you remember what I've been saying the last three years, what I've been saying the last six months, I've been a bear on the stock market for about a year, ever since asset ever since asset values got so overinflated, ever since the market went over, you know, 27, 20,000. I was like, really? And I started, you know, this is what happens in a run-up around irrational exuberance. Like, oh, I guess gravity doesn't exist anymore. I guess price-to-earnings ratios don't, don't really matter anymore. I guess historical valuations don't really matter anymore. Everybody else is all excited. Maybe I'm the dummy for not being as excited. That was happening because of the stupid tax cuts that he did that just artificially inflated those asset values, and that was really dumb, and I'll explain why. Well, I'll explain why quickly right now. It's because then you have further to fall. Because when there is a crisis, people look at, oh, geez, yeah, we've been... It's the same thing happened in the stock market crash, 1929. People had overinflated, borrowed to invest in the stock market, and they realized, oh, geez, I guess that gravy train is over, and that just cascades the fear. Similarly, the other move is he bullied the Fed to keep interest rates low. Now, the reason that was so dumb is not only did that artificially inflate asset values, giving us farther to fall, and that that descent, that is the fear itself. That descent is the thing that can cause a panic. Rather than being a blip, rather than being a bump, feels like a crash. And that can have not only psychological impact, which matters, but also practical impacts. Because people make certain plans, make certain additional leverages upon their financial positions, their investment positions. So not only the interest rates have been continue to sort of artificially inflate this balloon. How many times have I said, yeah, we're just inflating this balloon, but there's needles lying around. What's going to be the needle? Oh, coronavirus was the needle. But as Warren Buffett has said 30 years, you know, about every 10 years, the economic skies darken. And usually it's under 10 years. Usually it's eight. And there's no magic time. But there is a... Took, you know, this is the longest... We had a crash in 2008, right? And before that, we had the housing market destabilization starting in 2006. We had the longest run-up since then. So it's been over a decade this time, 11, 12 years. Well, Warren Buffett said, you know, about every decade... The economic skies darken. Well, they have darkened. Now, the thing is, is if while if, if you get too crazy, you get too exuberant during the good times, if you just say, let's jack it up. Maybe if I, I know that gravity is going to befall me, that, that tenure. And this is, of course, what the Republicans were thinking. We got to keep this gravy train going through the election. We just got to keep the gravy train going through the election. That's how this guy gets reelected. He's not going to get reelected because so many people like him. He's never been able to get his approval rating over like 44%. He's not going to do it because he brings together the country. It's not going to happen because he somehow moves to the middle or appeals to swing voters of some sort. It's going to be some combination, you know, voter suppression, maybe a third-party candidate, but also keep getting his numbers maybe to 46 because of a continued strong economy. Not strong for everybody, to be clear. Not We haven't seen a huge growth in the middle class. Hasn't been great for poor people. But people with big stock portfolios, they've been doing well. And that impacts the press story. And unemployment has been low. Now, the kinds of jobs 
have not been the same kinds of jobs as when unemployment was low in previous decades. But nonetheless, the kind of thing that can help push the press. So we got to keep the gravy train going. We can't slow the gravy train. Well, the gravy train slows of its own gravity. So we've got to give it an artificial boost. We'll pass a tax cut for rich people, which doc, which which major corporations will use not for big wage increases mostly, but to too great a degree for stock buybacks, which just jacked up the stock market values to unprecedented levels. And we'll also bully the Fed to lower interest rates. Not only again, now that's not only a dumb dumb thing, because it then continues to artificially inflate the balloon just waiting for a needle but also because it reduces your tools. I've said this before, but it's so important. We've got to get, like, we humanities majors have got to get smart about this stuff so we can have smart movements. And by the way, shout out to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, we got to we got to be smart about ac- economics. Let's just be smart about economics. There's this myth that people who own a lot of things must be better at economics. No, they might be better at keeping what they have or growing what they have. That is not the same thing as managing an economy, as coordinating an economy for everybody making sure it works for everybody or works over time. But see, now is the time you do want to rate lower interest rates. Now is the time you do say, okay, let's, let's cheapen money to make it easier. That's one of the ways that, you know, you have fiscal policy and monetary policy. All of our listeners know this, know the difference, right? Fiscal policy is like how we spend the money, things that Congress does, the president signs, economic stimulus, that's fiscal policy, universal health care, that's fiscal policy. Imagine if we had a system of universal health care right now. How helpful that would be to beat back a pandemic. Oh, my goodness. How much harder it is. You call it. Pro- I call it Providence. They got to get a test. Oh, I don't know. I don't really have test kits. Imagine how useful it would be to have a coordinated and integrated care system in this country. We're facing a pandemic. The other thing is monetary policy. Monetary policy essentially is the price of money. It essentially is interest rates, what the Fed does. And if we had allowed interest rates just to creep up a little bit, not to try to not to try to crush the economy, but just creep up a little bit, then you could do a couple couple few half point drops, which would actually lower people's mortgage rates, actually lower the amount that they were spending each month and ease financial stress, ease financial fear, and put a little money in the economy. But they already made us all eat our seed corn. We already did the stimulus stuff. We already did the backup measures. We already, all this, what we were saving for winter, we decided to eat in spring. We forgot the lesson in the Bible, the story of Joseph. There came a generation that knew not Joseph. We forgot that during times of plenty, we're supposed to save. Now, luckily, because of the last financial crisis and because we did have, for a very brief period, Democratic Senate, Democratic House, and Democratic President, that they were able to pass some measures so that banks are less highly leveraged now than they were then. We're not in bad, as bad a position for 2008. That's very good news. But still, the president's just, it, the handling of the economy has been so stupid, just so stupid. But of course, just to connect this, they they were trying so hard. Can we just keep inflating the balloon through November of 2020 so we can somehow drag this guy across, somehow keep the U.S. Senate? Well, they didn't keep it going past 2020. It wasn't realistic for them to do it. 
some point something was going to pop the balloon. Got a text in. Bernie should have dropped uh, should have dropped out and endorsed Warren after he had his heart attack. Joe Pesci had that to say. It's an interesting. Well, yeah, there there is, and I'm trying not to get into the so and so should drop out game because I know that, and, and I will acknowledge one of the major reasons for that. And if you have a text, by the way, either if you're Joe Pesci or someone else, by the way, I appreciate that person identified themselves as Joe Pesci as a, it's a listener. Nine seven one two two zero five nine seven nine. Tell us your name, otherwise we might make one up. It's nine seven one two two zero five nine seven nine. I'm trying to avoid though. This person should drop out. That person should drop out. In part, and I will say, I'll say why. It's actually emotional, because I know how emotional I was when I saw the writing on the wall for Elizabeth Warren. And and I've tried to play it pretty straight on this, but but I saw and I and I realized that if when you urge somebody's candidate uh, to get out there, it, it is hard to divorce that from one's own feelings. And what we've got to do is we've got to build a more united progressive movement. We've got to build a more united pro-democracy movement. We've got to build a set of people who are united by humanity because there's so much that can divide us. And if we are divided, democracy can't win, or at least it's too easy to defeat. But if we stick to the stuff we agree on 80% of the time, and forgive one another we, the stuff we disagree on 20% of the time, we can build a strong enough pro-democracy movement to give democracy a good chance. With that said, I want to acknowledge that there, there are a couple of views right now, and they both have strong arguments. One argument is Elizabeth Warren ought to, ought to not only drop out of the race, but endorse and push hard for Bernie Sanders. It's his last chance. To cite Andrea Chalupa, she's like, no, this is not Elizabeth Warren's fault. She's not going to be enough to save Bernie Sanders at this point. She's also got to think about how to keep the progressive movement united, and that might be trying to leverage her support to get Joe Biden's administration to be more progressive. I'm not going to weigh in that. on that. I'm just going to share Andrea Chalupa's view. And the other view is this one that Joe Pesci just shared. And I will say empirically, but I, I you know, maybe I can't be trusted because I am so very impressed by Elizabeth Warren as a, Warren as a candidate. But that I, I thought then that Elizabeth Warren was the best chance for a progressive, you know, someone that was calling for, heck, a wealth tax. First time anybody called for a wealth tax in my life that I thought I had any chance of winning any damn election. Excuse my language. The, but that... Uh, that I thought she was the best chance for a progressive to win. That I that my thought was that Bernie Sanders running again was uh, would cause some challenges. The same some of the same challenges that Hillary Clinton would have had if Hillary Clinton run again, which that was such a divisive primary, such a challenging primary, and so many people in the country had made up their minds around the candidates. This is when they said, "Well, did Bernie Sanders have a ceiling?" That's what they were talking about. So many people had made up their minds about the candidates. It'd be hard to get past where they were. And that early on, had Bernie Sanders, you know, dropped out and give it to Elizabeth Warren, I will say, I think Elizabeth Warren, you know, I think probably would have been the nominee. In October, in October, she was on the ascent. She was gaining steam. She was growing in followers. Leader in the leader in the news stories right at the time was when Bernie had his heart attack. And what's so interesting is since then, that's when Bernie had his surge and when Elizabeth Warren started dropping. And I think there were several factors. One of those factors, the media started going after Elizabeth Warren, just like they've been going after Bernie more since. It was inevitable that any candidate is really trying to shake things up is going to have uh, the 
major media organizations going after him. Also, I think there was a lot of really good feeling that was stirred up by Bernie's heart attack. Some people who love him who were sharing him. And I was one of the people that was like, oh, geez, like I was sharing stuff. Like, God, we got to love this guy. I think that created, you know, not only sent fewer asteroids his way, but also got more, gave him more gravity. Use my Jupiter, uh, my Jupiter and Earth examples. Uh, and uh, so I think there were, you know, a few dynamics that went around. But yeah, I, I hear where the listeners coming from. That, uh, that there will be there will be those afterwards who uh, decry uh, any number of things. And yeah, Joe Pesci, I hear what you're saying. Text line here is nine seven one two zero five nine seven nine. Russian Parliament has passed a bill, apropos of nothing, that allows Putin to rule until 2036. Constitutional amendments backed by Vladimir Putin that, among other changes, could allow him to remain in power for another over decade and a half by resetting his presidential tenure after his current term ends in 2024. The question of what will happen at the end of Putin's current term has loomed over Russia. So they changed the Constitution. <laughs> the last time, remember, he was out of office, and so they uh, found some flunky to sort of be the guy for a while until he could, like, come in again. Well, now he's like, I don't want to have to mess with the flunky. Just keep me in. The Duma voted. 43 people abstained. 383 people voted yes. No people voted no. Not anybody. There are 43 people who said, I can't vote on this. Thing. This is nuts. Or I'm sick. I'm worried about coronavirus. Or, you know, I got stuck in traffic. But there was nobody who could stand up and say, yeah, I'm cool with getting assassinated. <laughs> I'm for no. Uh, no, mark that down. It's 382 to 1. Putin's proposal rolled out in January divert some presidential powers to parliament and empower the unelected state council. But Tuesday's move to throw his support behind the term limits change indicates he does not intend to change roles at all. Russia's constitutional court, the national referendum, must approve the changes before the Russian people vote. On April 22nd, Putin is 67, has been in power for over tw- for just about 20 years. Still 10 years younger than either of the likely nominees for the Democratic nomination for the president. So, yeah, the changes could allow him to remain in the Kremlin for another 16. It'd be a long time. Like, as long as a dictator. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with a quick six. You're listening to Extra. I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for being with us. Text lines 971-220-5979. And you are listening to X-Ray, where radio is yours. And now it's time for today's quick six local rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. It's Thursday, March 12th. All gatherings of more than 250 people in Oregon will be canceled for the next four weeks. Governor Kate Brown announced the rule Wednesday night in an effort to slow the spread of COVID-19. That means many sports events, entertainment events, 10K runs, conferences, lectures, other planned events won't happen. Brown said public schools should remain open, but she said all non-essential school-associated gatherings and group activities should be canceled. No assemblies! 
The first COVID-19 case has been reported in Multnomah County. As of Wednesday evening, Oregon's total count of the novel coronavirus cases stands at 21, the first one in this county. Passenger traffic at Portland International Airport fell sharply last week, 10% drop amid the coronavirus outbreak as airlines continue ratcheting back flights. The airport said a little more than 31,000 vehicles used its parking lots last week, down 14% from the same week in 2019. Use of the long-term lot was down 8.5%, while the short-term lot, favored by business travelers, was down 18.2%. University of Oregon is responding to the spread with remote learning and a curb on gatherings. University has canceled any gathering of more than 50 people. Starting on Sunday, March 15th, students will take their winter term final exams remotely. Students will spend at least the first three weeks of spring term, which begins March 30th, also learning remotely. Governor Kate Brown has issued an executive order for state action on climate change. The order was issued on Tuesday, aims to sharply curb greenhouse gas emissions with a full court press by government agencies. The 14-page order comes less than a week after a Republican walkout killed Senate Bill 1530, the cap-and-trade bill. Like Senate Bill 1530, Brown's order updates the state's carbon reduction goals, setting targets of a 45% reduction below 1990 levels by 2035 and 80% reduction by 2050. Yesterday was the deadline to file as a candidate for the Oregon election, so we now know who all the candidates are going to be. There's a flurry of last-minute filings for positions up and down the ticket. There are now 11 Republicans vying for Greg Walden's U.S. House seat and six Democrats. Last-minute Republican is now running against Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum. David Z. Crow filed yesterday. He also ran against her four years ago. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. In just a minute, we're going to be talking to Rachel Donatio, who is going to talk to us about what's happening with the coronavirus. Also, a few other local stories. Steve Novick, former city commissioner who lost his seat to Chloe Udaly, has endorsed Chloe Udaly for the Portland City Council. Uh, that is new news. Uh, also, Sam Adams had the news that he's not holding his campaign kickoff because he didn't want to get anybody sick. Is Rachel with us? What are your thoughts? What are your questions? To give a little more about the climate change action, about the governor's, uh, Governor Brown's uh, gubernatorial order, the executive order on Tuesday, uh, like Senate Bill 1530, here's some of the similarities. It updates the state's carbon reduction goals, uh, 45% reduction by 2035, 80% reduction by 2050 directs agencies to alter building codes to prioritize energy efficiency, ratchets down the carbon intensity of gasoline, has provisions for updated energy efficiency standards for appliances, directives for reducing food waste, impacts 19 state agencies and commissions, directs a large portion of the state's bureaucracy to do its work with an eye toward reducing emissions. For its differences to Senate Bill 1530, a central piece of Brown's order bears a resemblance to the primary enforcement mechanism in the bill. Under the order, carbon polluters in the industrial, transportation, and natural gas sectors would have their emissions capped by the state's Environmental Quality Commission and the DEQ, the Department of Environmental Quality, 
with allowable emissions reduced over time. The exact rules will be the subject of a rulemaking process, one that lawmakers on Monday approved $5 million in emergency funds to start that rulemaking process. State officials in the past have discussed issuing permits that polluters must obtain for their emissions with a declining amount of available permits over time. It's similar to a system of allowances under Senate Bill 1530 that companies would have been required to purchase at an auction. The EQ is required to submit a final report on its options for such a system by June 30th. The cap and reduced provisions are slated to take effect no later than January 1, 2022. That's the same time frame of Senate Bill 1530. So the dynamic, the political dynamic here is interesting, right? Because the Republicans said, hey, we got a trump card. We read the rules. Turns out you guys can't do anything if we just bounce. If we leave the state. Now, if we just walk away from the building, you can issue a call to the House, and that can make the sheriff come and arrest us and bring us back to the Capitol. But if we leave the jurisdiction of the sheriff, which, by the way, it's di- the, way, the reason it's different from, filibuster, from, from filibuster is essentially is them violating the law. And it is them violating their job. It's not just, oh, yeah, we decide not to vote on this unless you can get a cloture vote. This is saying we're going to violate a call of the House by fleeing the state. It's crazy. And the governor responded by, that's fine, I'm going to play my trump card, which is I am the executive. And, of course, the Republicans say, hey, wait a minute, how, how can you do that? That's the kind of thing we should vote on. She now has an easy response. This is the kind of move that was not as rhetorically available two months ago. But, but after the walkout, it sort of seems like anything goes. In case you haven't heard, Italy is basically shut down due to COVID-19. It's the entire country of Italy. Residents are only allowed to move around for pressing matters of work, health, occasionally other circumstance, and then with written permission. The question now is if the model for the Western world will in fact be Italy in the wake of the coronavirus. Rachel Nadio is a writer for The Atlantic, wonderful outlet for journalism and truth. Recently wrote an article about the Western reaction to coronavirus, now joins us over the phone all the way from Paris. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What did Italy get wrong that we are also getting wrong? Italy waited a little long before leaping into action. I think at the beginning it was just unclear how viral this virus was. And that meant that once the number of cases grew and grew and grew exponentially, all of a sudden Italy went from life as normal to 60 million people under effectively a lockdown, which is a huge first for a Western European democracy. And when you said they waited too long, what did that mean? Like I can describe what seems like has been happening in the United States, which is the administration not wanting to admit the truth, the administration not sending out its surrogates to say we have... Their talking point was it is contained. That's what Kellyanne Conway said. That's what uh, Lawrence Kudlow said. We have it contained. And they well, pretty much contained. Pretty much contained. And then, and not pushing for tests. So what were the... When we think about the delay in Italy, how did that delay manifest itself? Was it outright denial? Was it just, oh, we're a little slow? Or is it, oh, this is a Chinese thing. We're not in China. What was What did the delay look like? 
It actually wasn't at all outright denial. Already in early February, Italy banned flights from China from arriving. There's some debate about whether or not that was a great idea because then people could fly to other countries and still come to Italy. But when the outbreak was first developing in some towns outside Milan, it effectively began putting those towns on quarantine. And when people started getting really sick in those areas, they started taking it seriously. But they thought that, yes, it was contained to those areas. But what we now know is that the virus is extremely contagious, much more so than the flu, and you can have it without knowing you have it and pass it on to a number of people. It also grows exponentially. The number of cases grows exponentially. So it starts out small, and then all of a sudden it spikes. And in Italy, the number of cases has been doubling um, or the number of cases has been really growing quickly. There are more than 10,000 people with that, but at the growth rate, it could mean that in three weeks, you know, 240,000 people could have this. But really, really, the most important issue here is that some people who get this virus go into extreme respiratory distress and need ICU care. And the reason why Italy has imposed this nationwide lockdown is because it is extremely challenging for the public health system, which is on the brink of collapse in Lombardy, the richest and most powerful region in Italy. So if it's happening there, if it then spreads to the rest of the country and to the poorer south, that will be a disaster in Italy. What this does is fills up all the ICU beds with people who need to be on respirators and don't breathe independently. That is really the issue. Yeah, what I noticed is I tried to do some research and dig in a little bit to the difference between South Korea and China, which have had some success in reducing the spread. I think it was, I may get these numbers wrong, uh, but I think it was, there were 3,500 a day, 3,500 new cases of coronavirus in China being logged a day. And I think like yesterday, it was like 40, not 40,000, but just 40. So they've precipitously declined the number of new cases. Of course, the not everybody's over it who caught it already. Uh, what what are the and it seems like the uh, measures that South Korea and China were taking were less about just other people coming into the country, but things they were doing inside the country. What are some of those measures that Italy hasn't taken on or that the United States hasn't taken on, which is why you have said, well, is Italy going to be a model for the Western world? Yeah, I mean, this is a disease with no known cure. The only cure is the moment is prevention and the best form of prevention is for people just not to gather together too closely and so once it started spreading in a small area you know the best approach which Italy tried but then didn't do enough of was to just really keep that area under containment I mean in China an authoritarian regime by when they had far fewer cases they sent out you know, they put entire cities on on um, yeah. on lockdown and and enforce that. Obviously, that's much harder to do in in you know Western democratic countries. But um, it's not about the number of people coming in and out of the country. It's just that once it starts spreading everywhere in in the population, the people who have it and are known to have it need to be in isolation so they don't infect other people. A couple measures that I heard in other countries. So fever clinics in China. So instead, uh, like here, it's like, okay, Europeans don't fly here. People from England, you can fly here. And anybody from Europe can go through the channel to get to England to fly here. But once you're here, 
uh, I don't know, stay home. But the problem is, I think what we saw in China was 75% of the transmissions were among and within family groups. So the staying home yeah. thing wasn't sufficient. What they did in China was, no, no, you got, you, got, uh, uh, you got your temperature taken when you went to work. And if you had a temperature, you didn't go back home. You went straight to a fever clinic. You went straight to essentially a group quarantine, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's really hard. I mean, look, I spoke to... A, a, a very important epidemiologist at, at Harvard today, Mark Lipsitch, and, and his argument is that this really, you know, the travel ban, it's not, that's not really the issue. You just yeah. need a, a, a much bigger strategy and you need to really be able to isolate people who, who have this. And we're just not used to that. It's, we're, we're all day by day getting our, getting our heads around this. But, you know, the only thing you can do to slow it down at this point is to just kind of not be in contact, which of course puts a tremendous strain on the economy, social ties, you know, everything. And that, of course, I think has been the motive underlying our administration's significant failure to respond is this huge fear that it would impact the president uh, politically if there was a slowdown of the economy. There's going to be a slowdown of the economy. There's no getting around it. The question is how many people are going to die uh, and how many people are going to stay unsick versus get sick. And we've been slow in testing. What do we know about the availability of testing kits either in Italy or in Europe or in the United States. There have been such a, been, we've been so slow to test here, we have no idea how many cases there are. We say, oh, there's this many cases. We have no idea how many cases there are. Yeah, we at The Atlantic, my, my colleagues, including James Hamblin, who's a doctor, have been, and Alexis Madrigal, who writes on technology, Robinson Meyer, also an uh, environmental reporter, they've done some excellent coverage just about the flaws in the testing, and we really, we don't know. In, in one thing about Italy, it's you know somewhat chaotic but quite aggressive at the moment response, is that we know how many tests they've been doing. They publish those results every day, the number of tests, the number of positives, the number of people infected, and unfortunately the exponentially rising death rate. And those are free public tests given by the national health. And in, in France, where I live, people the rate is rising also people are getting tested by the national health system although france won't tell you how many people have been tested and and, and neither will germany but you know this is a challenge why not what would you speculate and maybe that's speculation why why are they not do they not want to share that you know governments like holding on to information yeah. right so the crazy thing about anarchic italy is that information just kind of gets out somehow and they're actually releasing i mean the number of tests is a public piece of information being being released and i think that um, france and germany are more reluctant to do that france very centralized from the top they probably don't want people to know germany it's also more federal there are different states these lender that are they worried about a panic region. is that the thing cuz that's my that's been like my defense like if i were going to try to make the case for the Trump administration's response to the United States, if we can call it that, has been, well, I, I don't want to cause a panic. So the reason I'm going to just just abjectly lie to the American people is just so they don't get scared. Because, you know, fear itself can be a problem. Uh, the yeah. problem is, I think, once you realize that presidents continues to lie, you don't really believe it anymore. But I'm just wondering, do they worry about a panic or something else? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know why different European countries yeah. haven't told about the number of tests but in a case like this it's easy to panic and what you want at a time like this is clear direct honest straightforward information from a reliable source and you know political political leadership i mean this is a problem on so many levels it's a health problem it's a political problem it's certainly an economic problem it's straining social ties it's it's you know it's leading to all of us are 
sitting, you know, in, in semi-isolation trying to understand what we're supposed to do now. Yeah, it's and, and that is getting clear directions and getting them quickly seems like such a big piece of it. But again, the lessons that we learned from the Asian success in battling this is not only canceling big events and such, but rapidly testing anybody with symptoms to at least uh, you can at least eliminate something that it is so they well yeah go go about your life if you don't if it's clear that you have something else and you don't have it uh, but then also testing people that have it and then quarantining them and doing those things because recognizing the enemy is within what are other when you say is Italy going to be a model and that's why I say it's to me it's not just governmental system it's not just the difference of, of authoritarian versus less authoritarian regime because uh, even Japan and Germany at least have drive-through testing centers. We don't even have that. Yeah, I mean, it's everyone is kind of improvising and learning as they go along, but the thing that the experts, the epidemiologists say is that speed is the most powerful yeah. weapon here to just do things really quickly. But the Italian model is a, is a fascinating one. I mean, 60 million people can't leave their immediate areas unless they have a legally binding document that they fill out saying what urgent need there is. And you can go to work and you can go to the grocery store, but you can't do anything else. And all stores and restaurants and bars are closed until the middle of March, you know, for the next two weeks. And all schools are closed and all public places are closed. I mean, it's it's extreme. It's it's unbelievable. And I think that the people who are working are now, you know, there's a certain amount of social unrest. They don't want to be at work. Why do they have to work? But if yeah. they're working in essential industries, then they have to. I mean, it's 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 the number of challenges that this poses is, is hard to fathom. So how do you get this document? Like download it online? And then does somebody have to sign the document in addition to the person who downloads and signs it on their own behalf? You download it online, and you hope that... I'm worried about Italy because the Wi-Fi is so slow there, and oh, it's going to pose big challenges. But um, you download it online, and you fill it out, and if you're stopped by police, which you could be stopped, you show them the document proving why you have to go somewhere. And if you're going to the grocery store, then that's fine because that's an urgent need. If later they find out that you were lying, they're going to you know, fine you. I Again, I, I think it's very hard to have this enforced to the letter of the law for 60 million people, but it's certainly a strong, strong message yeah. being sent. And there have been some arrests, like people were stopped for, you know, doing something that wasn't deemed a necessary, necessary act. So yeah, you print it out, you fill it out online, and you're supposed to carry it with you. It's called an auto certification. What is the Atlantic doing? Are you working from home? Or are you all still going to the office? What's your workplace doing? Um, the Atlantic has urged people to take certain precautions, and a lot of people are are working from home. And I, you know, I'm based in Paris. I mostly work from home anyway. Um, but sometimes I think some people will go in, and, and other people won't. And you know, I think um, caution is the, yeah. is the is the word. Rachel Donatio of the Atlantic, thank you so much for the work that you do, and thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, our country isn't yet shut down. Should we be? What precautions should we be taking that we aren't already taking? The text line is 971-220-5979, 971-220-5979. We're going to be back in just a moment with our friend Alex Zelensky of the Portland Mercury. You listen to X-Ray, where radio is yours. Morning, everybody. You're listening to X-Ray. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you for being with us. And with us now, Alex Zelensky of the Portland Mercury. Alex, have you washed your hands before being on the radio? I have. I've washed my phone. I've washed my keyboard. I've washed my hands. I feel like my hands have 
aged a decade in the last week just by washing them so often. Just scrubbing them all, just peeling off the skin. Yeah, I've worried about my keys. I haven't washed my keys, and, and I guess I need to wash my keys because that's the one oh, thing. I'm sure they're disgusting. Right? I, I, I just, I just I mean, occurred to me. The funny that thing is that I think that they've probably always been disgusting, not just your keys, but like so many of these precautions we're taking are things that we probably should be doing anyways just yeah. to prevent any spread of virus. Like the full um, body, the full body uh, latex suit I'm wearing right now. Right. Yeah. Well, that's normal. <laughs> you. I want to talk. I want to. I'm doing all right. Uh, the Mercury. Are y'all coming to work? Are you guys starting to take days off? What's working? Yeah. From home? I'm. Uh, I'm currently working from home, yeah. just out of precaution, though. Yeah. I mean, we're we're fortunate enough enough to be able to work remotely pretty easily, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, we've just been coming. Yesterday I was in the office. Most of us, I mean, if you're feeling great, people stick around in the office. I kind of was feeling, maybe just because I was, I'm writing about coronavirus so often, I'm, I started to feel like there was a little itch in the back of my throat. Yeah, so it's, a, it's a question, like, is it psychosomatic or is it real, right? right. Is it like, yeah, I'm yeah. having the same, I, I'm starting to have the same, my wife and I are having sort of the same questions, and I think I'm right. going to be encouraging people to work from home here today yeah. and i think i'm going to take the same cues i needed to be at the microphone now but afterwards i think i'm getting the heck out of here yeah yeah how do you clean the microphone it's a good question we actually replace the uh uh we, we replace the the you, you wipe you wipe the, the metal part? and plastic part and you replace the foam part and wash it uh ah. and the and, and we did a replacement i think we're gonna do another replacement today uh, i actually did before the show wipe actually wipe it down Right, and we have we yeah. have wet wipes right out of the right outside of the office, and we're going through wet wipes like they're in style. Uh, yeah, I, we've been. I mean, this week and next week we're doing our endorsement interviews, which is when we have all the candidates for race <laughs> <laughs> come in and sit in the same table uh, and you know pitch us why we should endorse them. Uh, and so yesterday was our first day of those, and you know we came in and just deep cleaned the conference table handed out purell <laughs> um a couple people yeah. have, have been sick and haven't been able to come but so it goes it continues yeah, ideally if you, if you get sick apparently you're not gonna be able to get endorsed by port mercury get, yeah. if, you know shake hands with the wrong person and you don't get to win off uh-huh. win public the office worst, the truly the worst part of this is the weird alternative handshakes people have been inventing oh what are the worst uh, ones so far so obviously there's the elbows like, i've done some elbows what else Elbows. Um, Mayor Ted Wheeler gave uh, one of our reporters a, a Vulcan. Like, I just saw <laughs> that. I was going to say that. I saw someone. I saw it online. Oh yeah, recommend the Spock. The Spock yeah, Vulcan. Yeah. You know, spread the and two then fingers also a apart. Fist pump, which I don't know if like our knuckles clean. I don't know. Um, I think the D thing is we're less likely to lick our knuckles. Yeah, I've been not- more into like the finger guns, just kind of like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna bring bring the like- finger guns back. Seemed like the finger guns fell out of favor in the '90s, but now we'll get them. The finger guns will finally have their return, right? Along with like swinging like saloon doors. <laughs> um, I don't understand. Swing anyways, the, oh, so swing saloon doors are coming back. Oh, because people don't want to well, hold I feel on. Like to they knobs. go with the finger guns. That's oh, all. Oh yeah, I get it. I, I'm I'm down with saloon doors. And also the uh, uh, I'll give one that's kind of easy and not too weird. Just just peace symbol. Just give hey you know just give just give a peace symbol. It works pretty well. It's not too weird. People do it. You know what I'm saying you might seem like a rapper briefly, but otherwise you know it, it, it's you're probably not fronting too badly. People understand what you're doing. Uh, I think that one works all right. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also just okay with not doing anything and just saying hi just, and just nodding. It's a yeah. big, it's a big, uh, it's a plug for the bow, right? I mean, like the yeah. cultural superior to the bow to the uh, to the handshake is unassailable at this point. Maybe I should just start curtsying and see what people do. <laughs> Freak them out. You, you and me both. I'm going to start the curtsy. <laughs> yeah. I'll start the curtsy because then we don't have to gender it. You know what I'm saying? Like then yeah. we can. Oh, yeah. We'll just keep it. You know, we'll, we'll both we'll both curtsy. Curtsying is non-binary these days. I want to talk. I want to talk about an article in the Mercury right now, and thank you for being with us. We're talking to Alex Zelinsky yeah. about the homeless tax and its and its first legal challenge. First, explain yeah. who Joe Gilliam and Sean Gillians are. I know both these guys, <laughs> but explain these two. Yeah, folks. they both have great names to be paired together. Uh, when I was writing this, my editor who was looking over, I kept he was like, "Is this is this real? Are these real villains in this story?" Um, but Joe Gilliam is the president. Both of these men are um, state-level lobbyists. Uh, Gilliam is the president of North Northwest Grocery Association, which lobbies for groceries, grocery stores. Uh, and Sean Gillians is the head of the Oregon Manufacturers and Commerce um, Lobby, which is a little bit a little bit more vague but but covers um, anything from timber uh, to you know big manufacturing companies um, and they both have kind of teamed up together to fight um, Metro's proposed so tax I, on oh no no I, so I want to go back yeah they're gonna they're, they're fighting the tax on homeless I do want to ask you about that but just to dwell yeah. on these guys for a moment the uh, uh, so Joe Gilliam, it, these are now two of the leading corporate lobbyists in Oregon. Joe Gilliam right. is the, uh, the the grocers were tip of the spear when it was when fighting the uh, the retail taxes, sure. mm-hmm. and Sean Gillians was he, he got his rise working for the banks, and he he rose he was sort of tip of the spear in fighting taxes based on wealth, uh, and because mm-hmm. you know, and also was involved with the, the I think that one of the first battles against cap and trade. Uh, a few sessions ago, and currently, <laughs> yes, and so these yeah, have become. Yeah, they, they were they were influential lobbyists ten years ago. Uh, they have become two of the most two of the two of the mains or corporate uh, corporate lobbyists there are. So yeah. what are they up to? Yeah, go keep going on what they're up to now. So yeah, yeah, they're um, they're fighting this uh, home this proposed tax um, on businesses that's being proposed by uh, Metro Regional Government. Um, the tax is expected to be on the May um, May ballot, and it would um, place kind of a combined tax on. Let me make sure I get this right: a one percent tax on businesses um, in the tri-county region, Multnomah, um, Clackamas, Washington counties. That the businesses that are making more than one hundred twenty-five thousand, um, or sorry, I'm getting this wrong: a one percent tax on businesses that are making more than five million annually. And a one percent tax on individuals making more than one hundred twenty-five thousand uh, a year, and those taxes would go towards specifically uh, services that help um, people who are homeless get out of homelessness, or people who are at risk of being homeless. You know, folks who are living paycheck to paycheck, um, and going to you know divided across the tri-county area. So going to a lot of Specifically, you know, nonprofits that are already going to do that work, like Central City Concern and probably transition projects, and also smaller ones in, in counties, um, in Clackamas and Washington counties. 
basically programs that are um, aren't housing, aren't specifically providing the brick and mortar of housing, but are providing all of those services to keep people maybe in housing and get people into, you know, maybe addiction treatment or, or mental health treatment or just basic preventative care to help them stay in housing and, and not, um, and, and, you know, not suffer more than they need to on the streets. So the challenge is, it's a kind of a remarkable um, proposal because it, it's taken a while to get to this point um, where we're now, where it's being proposed and it's been referred to the ballot by Metro but it took a while to get Metro on board with, with being the, uh, the, the folks behind it, the, the folks carrying it to the ballot. They needed some convincing from the uh, coalition of folks who kind of put together this ballot. They're called uh, the Here Together um, campaign and Multnomah County, which was very behind it, and City Portland. And, and now they have kind of all of the... Um, all of these uh, local uh, officials on board. Um, and so it kind of seems like, you know, the momentum was going, there wasn't any pushback. What, what was remarkable and also important to, to note is that Portland Business Alliance kind of helped cobble together this proposal. And they're usually the same, they're, they're usually the group that stands in the way with a lot of these business taxes. Granted, they aren't in full-throated support of the tax itself. They say it deserves to go to a vote. Um, they aren't either opposed to it, they're a bit neutral, they're supportive of the measures promises of, of kind of how they've been involved in kind of um, suggesting, you know, what would what business leaders would like to see to, to, to change kind of the response to houselessness in the streets. Um, and, but they haven't been involved in kind of the, the funding mechanism and they're a little hesitant to, to embrace it because it taxes businesses and that impacts their, um, their membership. So, um, basically, everyone's more or less on board. No one has been har harshly critical of this plan until now where, I mean, it's kind of comically expected that it's the two top corporate lobbyists who are trying to stand in the way of this um, program or this proposal because they, they represent the folks who, you know, these bigger, bigger businesses that could be taxed more um, if this goes through. I think their their big argument is that hey, there's already so many different taxes on businesses and on people in Oregon in general. Why put another one on, like, why burden these businesses with more of your um, socialist taxes? Um, and, yeah. and, I mean, it's not, it's something that I think the campaign behind this measure is prepared for, and also, like, I think that's their, their biggest, um, most valid argument against why folks should support this tax just because it's just another tax and we're already being we're already putting money towards different um, you know uh, just last year Metro or I guess 2018 Metro carried uh, that housing bond which was a huge um, huge chunk of money that came from um, taxing home owners in uh, the, the Tri-County region to support housing low-income housing for folks who need it, including people who are homeless. And now, you know, two years later, we're seeing another one that's, that's a little bit different, different funding mechanism, but um, towards the same group of people. And so I think anti-tax uh, groups are, are just, are, um, you know, any new tax is a bad tax. So that's the pitch. You're listening to X-Ray FM, KXY Portland, KQAC HD3, Portland 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. 
Al Zelensky, what's the next thing to watch for? Just see what the scale of the campaign is. And when are people voting? Uh, May 19th, primary election day. Um, that is if, you know, coronavirus doesn't shut democracy down before then. Yep. Uh, so we still have some time for the campaign to play out for this challenge to come out. I guess I didn't say exactly what the, the challenge was. It's a, um, a legal challenge from these two men that they filed, uh, basically over the ballot language, which is kind of, it's a wonky way to to just slow down the whole process of getting a ballot or getting a proposed measure on the ballot yep. saying, Hey, this isn't, this is unclear. There are these little points, you know, you need a comma here and whatever. Um, and just, you know, basically a roadblock that, that slows down the process and is annoying. But it, regardless of how this legal challenge plays out, um, it's clear now kind of that there is an, a, a strong, op- yep. you know, group in, in opposition. There is, there is an opposition group to the homeless tax. Thank you so much, Alex Linsky, for joining mm-hmm. us today. Thank you. Have a, have a good rest of your week. I'll try to stay safe. Thanks also to Casey. Thanks to Julia. Thanks so much to Morel Inc. Ink on anything, mail anywhere. Tomorrow in the morning, we'll be back with Hannah and Kira with Kickstand Comedy. We'll also be giving you our candidate interviews as we go along. You're listening to X-Ray.